Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to the eighth episode of Fraudology Podcast. I am excited that you are here. And thank you to everyone who has listened to the first seven podcast episodes. We have well over a thousand people that have done that. And I'm just so glad that we can spread the word of fraud prevention to fraud fighters as well as concerned consumers. All very important. This has been a crazy week for me, uh, mostly because I got pretty sick a few days ago at the end of last week, and so I missed two days of work, which put me just very much behind on everything I was already behind, so because I try to always do all the things. Uh, and I was, you know, getting pretty good there for a little bit at limiting it, but as there's more fraud, I just want to help more people, and that's really what drives me, so that means I usually end up doing a lot and thinking about this 24-7 almost, but it's the life I chose and it's the life I love. So uh, there's that. However, I would say if I owe you an email or a LinkedIn message or a text, I would ask for a little bit of grace and also feel free to send it again or get to the top of my inbox because that might be the best way to get my attention right now. So um, I'm trying though, so please know that. And if my voice is crackly today, please give me a pass on that as well. Thankfully, it's not COVID. It's just a cold. I usually get one when it starts getting a little chilly in Seattle, and that's exactly what happened. So I am on a plethora of Eastern herbs, Western herbs, you know, you name it, I try it. And some of them really actually help to make the cold much shorter. But I did have to sleep for most of Thursday and Friday. So that yeah, put a put a wrench in things, but that's okay. Oh gosh, I just started thinking of Chumbawamba's song, I get knocked down, but I get up again. I'm sorry, guys. Now it's going to be stuck in your head for <laughs> days because now it's stuck in mine. <laughs> so I also wanted to mention before diving into uh, some pretty big topics today that I'll be speaking at FraudCon on October 21st. And I'm, I just love FraudCon, not only because I was the recipient of the first annual Legend of E-Commerce Fraud Award. I promise that's not the only reason. But I did get to go to Tel Aviv and attend FraudCon in person last year. And I fell in love with the people and the food and the beaches of Tel Aviv. And I often daydream about them as I, you know, can't travel right now. But and probably wouldn't be welcome there anyway. I'd have to quarantine for quite a while. But, you know, 
because it's not, uh, there are some benefits to events going virtual. One of them is that you don't have to get on a 16 hour flight to Tel Aviv. If you live on the West coast of the U S like I do, you can just hop on your computer and watch them. And actually for only $30, you can get access to watch the presentations at any time, which is nice because time zones are crazy. I know for me, Israel is nine hours ahead of the Pacific time. So, um, I think, it's going to be very late slash early when I present, but you guys can watch it at any time. I would highly suggest logging, signing up your team and everything else because it's not just the content to FraudCon you get. You also get all the content to Cyber Week, including the Teresa Payton keynote, which Teresa Payton spoke at the Merchant uh, Risk Council event last year, I believe time is escaping me. So if it wasn't in 2019, I apologize, but I got to see a tiny bit of it, but most people got to see the whole thing and just really raved about it and were quoting her for a long time. So there's a lot of great information in that event, as well as with FraudCon. It's a portion of Cyber Week. It's the last day of Cyber Week. And the theme this year is war stories, which are always the best. And there's some really great people speaking. I'm really lucky and glad to be part of, you know, part of that group. But there's, you know, Frank McKenna from Point Predictive who will be on um, the podcast soon, as well as other people that I really admire. So I think, you know, I would really recommend signing up for that. I will uh, put the link to register in the show notes, uh, as well as I've posted on it um, on LinkedIn a few times. So anyway, all that said, Let's dive in to our What the Fraud segment this week. Just to remind you, or if this is your first episode listening, What the Fraud is really, you know, my WTF story of the week around fraud. And a lot of times I choose them based on things that I think other people in fraud fighting or that care about fraud prevention should be aware of. So this week's a little bit different though, because I usually read a big part of the article and I do have a personal policy of only naming merchant names when they are in the press. But for reasons I will explain in a few minutes, I'm not going to name the companies or the articles and I'm not going to post them in the podcast. I do know that you can still Google them and search for them. I get that. But out of respect for the fraud teams and the fact that I have worked with them in the past or maybe working with them in the future and we've had conversations, I just I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but I do want to still use this as a learning experience. So I hope that you guys understand that you can still learn a lot without ever knowing who the company is. And I know that that is frustrating probably and there's probably a lot of sales reps that are googling it right now because they want to pitch them I would recommend not doing that because these companies are getting bombarded with that and not answering but that's a whole other side note I don't blame you for needing to hustle so you know there are two companies that were in the news in the last I'm gonna just say two weeks and kind of for the same thing for fraud both were due to users of their services being ripped off or uh, losing their money and not being able to contact the company to resolve it in a timely manner or, or what they, you know, and they didn't know if they were going to get their money back. I should say that both of these companies are not typical merchants. They're more in the consumer fintech piece. So there's a lot of consumer fintech companies such as 
you know, online banking, digital banking. There's a lot more P2P payments. So person to person payments. There's a lot of Bitcoin and stocks and there's just this whole new sector of companies coming up and it's fairly unregulated. I mean, if you're in stocks or Bitcoin or banking, like there's some regulations, but not as many as as I think traditional banks have. I could be wrong, but I, from what I understand and the companies I've talked to, it sure seems like there's less rules and regulations than traditional banks, as well as they are, you know, it's really important for them to onboard quickly and everything else. So there's just, there's a lot more fraud there. Fraudsters are loving these services. Uh, and there's actually nothing wrong with it. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with these companies. I am a user of one of two of them and actually have plans, have been planning on using the second one. So it's not that the company is unsafe. It's that the company hasn't done enough to prevent fraud. And fraud doesn't just impact the merchant. It impacts the customer and the consumer. And I think a lot of times we forget about that. Sometimes it's just, oh, this is an acceptable loss. Well, what about the person's credit card that was stolen and now they have to call the com- their bank and get a charge back and hope that the money you know, is credited to their account in time? Or what about the person who had their account taken over and had all of their loyalty mi- miles taken out of their um, airline account and now can't fly to, you know, see a family member or go to a family member's funeral. I mean, there's a lot of impacts I just don't think that we all think about. And so that's why it's so important to prevent the fraud from ever happening. They might see an authorization on their card or they might see you know, something like that, but then they don't even know that somebody tried to log into their account. And yes, there's some consumer issues around that. Consumers need to stop using the same password for multiple accounts. It would make it a heck of a lot easier to protect them from account takeover, but we can't count on that. So especially if you are you as a company are not actively educating on them on that, but that's a whole other pet peeve. So diving into the specifics without being too specific, uh, with company number one, uh, both articles were in international publications that were big deals. Like I'm not talking about regional regional newspapers. I'm talking about, you know, national publications, international publications, really big name publications. Uh, Can't stress that enough. So unfortunately, this wasn't quiet where one small region, you know, learned about it on the news report or something. In this first company, there were a lot of account takeovers and the consumers said that they there were multiple consumers that contacted this one reporter and I'm sure there are other reporters that were contacted as well um, who had been waiting multiple weeks to have their accounts investigated and looked at so they didn't know if they were going to get their money back when they were going to get their money back and they tried on multiple occasions to contact customer service and could never get through. Um, putting myself in the customer's shoes, I'd be mad too. And I think if you're a fraud fighter and you don't put yourself in the customer's shoes when you are thinking about what's happening to your customers, you're it's you're doing your your company a disservice. I don't know how many times when I go into a consulting uh, position or job and I'm talking with the executives and they're like explaining these crazy verification processes. You know, you have to stand on one foot and pat your head and rub your stomach and send in your driver's license and your birth certificate and your mother's maiden name and your blood type. I mean, not really, but there are some companies that come really close to that. I'm not over exaggerating on all those points uh, just to buy a new pair of shoes. So when I say, well, if you had to do that, or if your partner had to do that, your spouse had to do that, 
would you go back to that company again? Oh, I didn't think about that. Okay. Same with, you know, account takeovers. Okay. So you're just accepting that it's part of doing business, but hello. So, you know, the, the customers are told it's going to be a while. So they started filing complaints with federal agencies. They started, you know, talking to lots of reporters and filing Better Business Bureau. These were both in the U.S. for the most part, but uh, they operate outside of the U.S. But these were stories in the U.S., consumers in the U.S., um, especially now with customers, with consumers just not having a lot of money on hand and things being really tight and scary in the U.S. right now financially for a lot of people, that created a lot more panic. So the thing that got me about this the most is that I've actually, I talked to this company and I actually sent them a note when I read this article. I almost feel like I need to, like Hallmark needs to create a line, like a card line of like, I'm sorry, your company got breached or I'm sorry, your company got a headline about fraud. But I send those notes without a Hallmark card. And but so the head of their or one of the heads of their leadership in fraud had contacted me, I don't know, about two months ago or so. And I'm sure they're listening. And I I hope you I, I think they'll understand why I'm sharing this story. And they knew they had this problem and they were in over their head and they were doing so many things so manual, even though their numbers were just climbing and they were getting so many new customers and so many new customers and they were trying to add people, but it takes a while to add fraud analysts and it's so manual that you've got to, you know, train them and you can't keep digging yourself out of the backlog when you're training a new person. Oh, and by the way, everybody's working from home and remote, so you can't just like stand over someone's shoulder and help them. So they they knew they were drowning. They knew that they needed a better way. And they were talking to me about consulting. And I was very happy to talk to them about it because I um, really am excited about the business model they have and really like the people that they've hired so far and the people that they've hired really, you know, appreciate the business. So, you know, I was very happy to talk to them about working together. And I even tried to give a few, you know, tips just for free because I try really hard not to hold too much knowledge for on too much knowledge hostage though I mean it's kind of kind of hard when you are self-employed that's a whole other story but I do try to give as much as I can away via the podcast via emails etc I mean but there's a lot of things that I know will make a big difference to a company that I just can't provide without compensation and that's painful for me sometimes but they said you know why don't we start with maybe just you speaking to the team and boosting morale because I don't think our leadership will pay for anything else. And I thought, okay, well, it's very clear that you need more than that. And they said, I know, I agree. Trying to get leadership to care over here. I'm like, okay, understand that. Um, Very similar to Eric Rainsberg's interview on the last podcast. I mean, it's really a challenge sometimes to have leadership understand how important risk management and fraud prevention is until they have what I call an oh shit moment. You really want, you know, as a fraud professional, you want to prevent those as much as possible, but sometimes you can't. I mean, you need someone to sign the check, right? You need someone to approve the budget. You need someone to approve the headcount. You need someone to understand that going hand-to-hand combat and manually investigating account takeovers after they happen is just a poor use of company time and employee time as well as customer service and you're going to lose the trust of your customers and and that just wasn't the case with that company and I felt so bad for the fraud leadership because I knew they were trying I knew they knew there was a problem I knew they knew that they needed help 
and they knew they needed, you know, more different technology and everything else, but they wanted, you know, someone to help them to navigate that, which I, I do often because let's face it, a lot of them sound alike. So, and I don't always pick the same company for every merchant at all. So there are some that are better than others for certain business models. So I can kind of help them navigate that. So I tried, but we kind of left as, okay, well, the leadership never even approved the very small fee for speaking that I, that I gave. I mean, it was really discounted for what I charged conferences or anything else. I just wanted to help them, but I knew I needed to, you know, have some revenue. Oh shoot. If my business mentor (laughs) listens to this, I'm going to be in trouble. But anyway, that's not the point of the story. I just thought, oh gosh, I can hear her yelling at me, but So I knew how important it was. They knew how important it was. Their leadership didn't know. When I reached out to the leader of fraud on Friday night, when I saw the story, that's not when it came out, but I was like, hey, really sorry. Saw it. You know, I'm not trying to pitch my services or anything. I just wanted to let you know, thinking of you, you did everything right. You knew this was coming. You know, this is what happens when you don't do anything. And they said, you know, I, well, first they said they were, you know, out of the office for the last two days. And I said, well, I guess you're never going to be allowed to leave again to go, you know, not out of the office, but to take a couple days off. But then I said, you know, or no. So they said, sorry, that they just hope that this is going to get the right people's eyes and the right attention. And unfortunately, sometimes that's what it takes. I was once hired by a fortune, probably 50 company, but I'm just going to say fortune 100 company because they had to disclose to their shareholders that they were losing millions of dollars in fraud chargebacks. That's not a conversation that you want to have. Uh, you want to be preventing those the fraudulent transactions from ever occurring. There's just so much less work as well as less fallout. Same with account takeover. You want to stop it before they can ever log in for so many reasons. So that's the first one. They knew it was a problem. The fraud team was doing everything they possibly could, but they really had very little resources and were being, had to be reactive rather than proactive because of leadership. The second company has had multiple types of fraud, especially since the pandemic. It has just increased like crazy. And there's been multiple different types, a lot of new account fraud because it's so simple to apply for uh, an account. And it's being used to launder money like crazy. There's money mules being involved. There's so much. I mean, especially in working with Chase Park, who I interviewed a few episodes ago, he has access to so much of that on these private communities. Some of them are on the dark web, but a lot of them are on these encrypted messaging services that you wouldn't even know because they know people are monitoring the dark web. And he's embedded in those. And he was telling me about this company and like, wow, it's really bad. Like, I think they're actually a fraudulent company. And I said, no, I know they aren't. Not at all. I actually was in their office last fall. So I reached out to somebody pretty high up there, not just in fraud, but a little higher up who I knew personally or had met personally. Anyways, I wouldn't say we're friends or anything, but know them and they know me. And I said, Hey, I'm you know getting a lot of information here from dark web. I really want you to know that this is happening. And they wrote back once and then they said, yo, well, can you tell me, you know, what's happening? And so I gave them some detail and suggested that we get on a call and Chase could show them screenshots. And I said, I'm not, you know, if you think it makes sense to work together fully, that's fine, but I'm not, this isn't a sales pitch. This is an offer for intelligence and information because I think it's critical. And they never wrote back. And I, 
I know other people that have tried to contact this company and sound similar alarms and give them information that they probably don't have access to, or maybe tell them something they already knew. I don't know if it's arrogance. I don't know if it's apathy. I know that they have a great number of data scientists and engineers there, but I also know that there is so much fraud being allowed on that system. And there was a very large article in a big publication recently about this. And I'm afraid it's going to lead to a lot of regulations on consumer fintech companies. And, and that's probably a good thing. But when we can't regulate ourselves, the people who are going to regulate it are people who don't understand this industry. We can only hope that they will ask people who do know it, but that's not always the case. Just ask people in Europe that have been navigating GDPR for the last couple of years. I will say that, you know, the European Union did a pretty good job of, of soliciting input from experts on payments. However, uh, there were a lot of lessons that they had to learn after the regulations went out. So that's why I say that. But here's the thing, like consumers more than ever, they know that they have methods and, and ways to voice their concerns if you won't listen. They will call the Better Business Bureau. Like I said, they will call, you know, publications. They will post on Reddit. They will post on social media everywhere they can. And so it's so critical. I mean, especially now that the economy is bad, every dollar of consumer spending I know is really important and valuable to every online company. And if you can't convey trust and safety to your customers, you're in huge trouble. And I know that, you know, trust and safety is something is a term that's been used in this industry for several years now as a division of fraud, because trust and safety is so much more than fraud. And it's really more about marketplaces and just, you know, all the different types of commerce there is now and more about promo abuse and just customer abuse in general and reviews and looking at content abuse and just so many things. But, you know, payment fraud is part of it. But on a bigger scale, I was actually on a call with um, my business mentorship group and we had a top marketing person who just does so much data analysis actually for a bunch of elections, electoral campaigns, as well as a lot of big companies. And they said that when they ask customers, how do you choose what company you're going to spend money with right now during the coronavirus, during you know the all the financial impacts of the COVID, et cetera. It always comes down to trusting the company and feeling safe to do so. And so whether your company has a trust and safety department or a fraud department, your customers are choosing you versus your competitor or versus not using anyone at all based on how safe they feel and how much they feel like they can trust you. I'll never forget something that Kevin Lee, who has been in fraud for just as long as me and has worked at Google and Facebook, and he's, you know, was one of the people that started the risk department at Square. He's now at SIFT, and he once said that a high school track coach told him, I think it was track, uh, maybe it was basketball, I don't know, a high school coach told him that trust is uh, gained in drops, but lost in buckets. That couldn't be more true. So when consumers feel like you as a company aren't prioritizing their safety and they don't know where their money went and they don't know when it's coming back and they don't know how to get a hold of you that is not a way to build trust and safety that's the opposite so maybe that's the angle you go to with your you know your leadership i think the biggest takeaways from all this and i know this is along with the fraud segment but it felt like it was really important you know for both companies the problems were going on for a while before the press found out. 
I mean, I've known about both of them for at least two months, I think. Essentially, it's like saying that the tea kettle was wasn't hot before it started whistling, right? It it was the tea kettle was very hot before it started whistling. So know that it's not like this happened overnight, like a breach would with cybersecurity. This happened over time and, and customers just were like, this is not okay. You know, had they been able to contact those companies directly, I think it would have stayed out of the press. But you know, here we are. But there's a lot of lessons to learn from that. And this is why I'm talking about it so much. So, you know, they had an opportunity to fix it, but didn't for two pretty common reasons. Leadership wasn't interested or didn't understand the value or what was at stake or what could happen, like the worst case scenario. It's not just all about dollar loss. I think it's super important to explain to executives brand reputation and the impact of you know what what's going to happen if you can't get this problem under control you know that type of thing i think i don't think that people in fraud are very good myself very much included i actually completely bombed a pitch last week because i didn't do a good job explaining to a top executive at at a pretty good sized company why what i was providing was going to help solve their problem i i was comfortable telling them all about the problem but i had a really hard time I think I'm used to talking to fraud people who get the why and I don't have to explain it. So I'm in that boat, but I'm on a journey to learn how I can, you know, explain it better to leaders. And I'm going to be taking a lot of you guys on that journey as well through the podcast. I've got some pretty exciting um, CEOs and other people who, you know, have been CEOs of public companies who are going to come talk about, you know, talking to leadership, et cetera, in the coming months. But back to takeaways, consumers have less money than ever. So if they can't fix it with your company directly and they've lost money, they'll call their bank tissue chargeback. They will call the Better Business Bureau. They will call federal regulators, the press, anyone that will listen. They'll tell five friends at least. They'll post it on their social media. They'll post it on Yelp. I mean, go, they will shout it to the rooftops. And you know what? You probably would too. I, if you don't feel heard, you're gonna keep yelling until somebody hears you. That's human nature, but very true in fraud as well. You know, like I said, trust and safety matters more than anything. So I think it's really good to use stories like these to explain what's at stake to leadership. If customers, you know, contact the press, if customers aren't able to resolve it with you, if you have high call times, if you, your fraud is department is focusing on being reactive rather than proactive, if your fraud department is arrogant and has apathy and just doesn't think they need to deal with it. It's it, it multiplies quickly. It's not like fraud stays the same. It's they'll all. I think the best analogy I heard was from the CEO of Vesta, who said they're like ants on a picnic. They'll go in the you know least resistance path of least resistance. So if you are if they find a crumb, they're going to go back and tell their entire, all their friends and their whole network, and then they're all going to come back. So I think it's very important to also be able to measure what's going to happen if you don't do anything. I learned that from a big retailer just a couple weeks ago in an interview I was doing for a focus group. I asked them how they you know, were able to get their leadership on, on board. And they said, well, I basically showed them the numbers and I showed them what ha- would happen if we didn't do anything else, if we didn't change what we were doing. And basically they took the rate of increase uh, by percentage monthly. So you take each month and look at how the percentage of fraud to sales 
and how it's increasing that growth rate and multiply it by your average monthly losses in the last three months, say or so. And you can give a pretty good projection that this is, I mean, it's still going to be a safe and actually conservative projection because fraud doesn't really multiply at the same rate. It's going to keep that rate is going to keep increasing. The delta is going to keep increasing, but it at least shows a picture to executives who are thinking of 800 other things, what they can, you know, what's going to happen if you don't do anything else. And I think that that's super critical for all of us to learn and do because charts and graphs speak louder than words, especially when speaking to executives that have a lot on their plate and are thinking about, you know, marketing and everything else. The more stories like this, like the more likely that regulation in this space in the U.S. is going to happen. And also I'm noticing that there are more publications that are writing about fraud than ever. Big publications. I think it used to just be like local news or something like that. Someone's debit card got stolen or I don't mean to minimize it. Just, you know, it was rather small audience. Now it's pretty big. I mean, I guess if you have one thing going for you, it's the news cycle in the U.S. is crazy right now. And that probably isn't a huge headline, but it's still a headline people are reading. And when they Google your company, that article is going to come up, you know, is saying that happens. So I did not mean for this what the fraud segment to take 30 minutes so i'm but i am going to talk a little bit about the topic that i had prepared for today and then i'm going to kind of just share some tips that i think you guys need to be thinking about especially if your business has a spike during the holiday season You've heard me stress in the last several episodes and even on this episode, how important customers feel that trust and safety is to them right now. They're making their purchasing decisions based on what companies they feel like they can trust and that will keep them safe. And that is just a fact of life. So many marketing uh, consultants are, are stating that. And you know, it's interesting that there are actual departments called trust and safety that are responsible for fraud prevention, as well as content abuse and, you know, review abuse and promo code abuse and any kind of abuse, as well as account takeovers, etc. And they really develop trust and safety teams really develop a partnership within the company. Just even the name uh, trust and safety is a little more friendly and, and explanatory than fraud prevention team for your company. But it's, it's more than just naming your team that there's a whole mindset and methodology around uh, digital trust and safety that I'm actually still learning. And I just discovered a really good resource uh, to learn more about that. And that is from the podcast sponsor today, SIFT. They just launched a brand new website that I have to say is really impressive. I mean, it's way different. Sorry, guys, but it's a lot better than the previous website. It's really interactive and has a lot of great information. I mean, the very first fact that popped up that I saw as I was kind of scrolling through was that 56% of consumers would abandon your brand if they fell victim to fraud on your site. Think about how many people get, you know, all, all those customers that get account takeover, like I was just mentioning in the previous segment, or they have their card stolen and used on your site. And maybe they've never heard of your site before, but now they have. And what do they tell their friends? They don't say, oh, my 
bank card was compromised, they say, oh, my card was used at blah. And they think you are fraudulent. So very important to, you know, that that's a huge number and kind of a game changer, honestly. Please include that when you're talking to your leaders as well. So SIFT just released a brand new digital trust and safety playbook this week that is now available on the Fraudology site. So it's www.sift.com forward slash Fraudology. I highly recommend downloading it, not just because they're a sponsor, I'd probably say this otherwise, but I appreciate the sponsorship very much. They, it really goes in depth and I'm really impressed with it because I think there's just too many people that get overwhelmed by the term trust and safety or don't understand it or think, well, don't you guys do the same thing? Or isn't that just for marketplaces? And yeah, that's where it started, but that doesn't mean that you can't use that methodology to work for you as well. And It actually examines the trust and safety departments at companies like Twitter, DoorDash, and Airbnb. I know Turo is mentioned as well. Great team there. I mean, it's so important for marketplaces to, they have so many other things to think about rather than companies that are, you know, I shouldn't say just, but that are providing their own services, that it's really great to learn how they're fighting fraud and how they're, you know, really building trust and, and making their customers feel safe. It really focuses in on how to accelerate growth and adapt to changing conditions so that you can really find that balance between protection and growth. And that's really a big part of what digital trust and safety is about. It's not just focusing on fraud and preventing that. It's also focusing on growing the brand and growing sales and growing, you know, customer base by keeping people safe. So all that said, I really um, I suggest that you check out the website. You might, you know, learn some things. I, I know you'll learn some things. But this playbook is 14 pages of really good information on strategy and all that. And, you know, in the absence of going to conferences and learning, I highly recommend, you know, soaking up any virtual event as well as any ebooks that are put out by vendors who genuinely care about your education. Of course, they'd love for you to check out your, their solution and, and SIF's solution is a really good one. But at the same time, they're also providing this free education. So highly recommend it. I hope you check it out. Okay, so I didn't mean for the What the Fraud segment to be around 30 minutes, so I apologize for that, but I hope it was really helpful. For the rest of the episode, I wanted to talk about the holidays, especially for retailers or fraud fighters where you have a spike in holiday traffic. Uh, A lot of it is retailers and physical goods, but there's a lot more digital goods and services that are being provided online, especially, you know, gift cards are definitely one that are rife with fraud and definitely grow a lot during the holidays. I'm not going to be able to dive into all the specifics of all the different ways, but I just, I really wanted to kind of start planting the seed because yes, I know it's October and I know that usually a lot of companies don't really start talking about holidays until right around now and then they start planning for it and you kind of start to learn your marketing plans and the things that'll be on sale and get the schedules and everything and really the holidays generally kick off maybe at earliest November 11th on Veterans Day in the U.S. or Singles Day in in Asia but China really but this year thanks to Amazon I think a lot of us can say a lot of things thanks to Amazon like two-day shipping and everything else they decided to create Prime Day, and usually their arbitrary holiday is in July, but because coronavirus impacted, you know, their warehouses and distribution and shipping and everything else during that time, 
they moved it to October 13th and 14th. I know that this podcast episode is coming out on the 15th. They have huge sales, uh, especially for Prime members. This is when they really try to drive up, you know, Prime membership and everything else, which, you know, has a lot of perks. Full disclosure, I am a Prime member, but that's about, you know, I try to patron a lot of other retailers as well. But a lot of retailers have had to kind of try to keep up. So they also have a lot of sales this week. And when I had the retailer call just almost two weeks ago, because it'll be this week again, we talked about holiday prep and how it's really starting earlier than ever because of this Prime Day and because people are wanting to get the biggest sales possible and because a lot of people aren't going to be going shopping in person on Black Friday, if that's something they do in the U.S. or other shops all over the world. So we're expecting a huge bump in online traffic, obviously, and so it may be spread out a lot longer. Uh, there's going to be a lot more new customers shopping online than ever. 70% of Americans are either struggling to get by or barely making it, so there's financial issues there. So they're going to be looking for the best deal, which really scares me with the rise and the very rapid rise of fraud as a service, such as refunding, buy for you, and warranty exploitation. Those three are going to skyrocket, and I'm going to talk about them more in a minute. I I feel like I am a weather person or a meteorologist looking at a tsunami coming, and I am on a very small channel of the news, and nobody's, not nobody, but not many people are, are, are getting my alerts, I guess I should say. Um, so this is my version of screaming it from the rooftops. But I think it's super important to be aware of. Also, you know, most merchants aren't in office, so there's less meetings to prepare for the holidays. Budgets for retail are have been slashed. There's less money to hire additional staff or add any new technology. So many, you know, there's so many cards and personal identification numbers, just information, PII as we call it, and also just so much data out there to steal someone's card. I mean, like Alexander Hall talked about two episodes ago, you don't even need to buy carding lists. You can just use math. You can use the mod 10. I actually didn't realize that that was still possible and have had a lot of people contact me about that and definitely reach out to him for more information. I really, I really think everyone should hire him. And I'm saying that as a competitive consultant, but my practice is doing well. That guy knows so much. So really, you know, if you need to do a holiday assessment quickly, I think he's your guy (laughs) because I can't even get through my inbox. (laughs) That doesn't mean don't contact me for consulting. Just, you know, I I really think he, he knows his stuff there. So, you know, there's just so much. Oh, warehouses and delivery drivers are socially distancing. So it's going to take longer to pack, pick and pack items no signature required because delivery drivers can't require a signature because of COVID. Like there are a lot of reasons I could even add to this list. This was a quick list that I wrote up like very quickly about the reasons why this holiday season is scaring me. Uh, And I'm not trying to scare you guys, but I'd rather you be prepared and know about it than be terrified and have a nervous breakdown in the middle of November uh, or December for that matter. So there's going to be a rise. That's just no question. There's going to be a rise in carding. There's going to be a rise in triangulation websites. 
those are the fake websites that you know pull pictures from legitimate online retailers and put them on their own website. I talked about it, I think, in the second or third episode of someone that I knew that made a purchase from there. But they're basically, once they get an order from a legitimate customer, they're then placing an order on a stolen credit card with the retailer and making it look very legitimate. And they wouldn't advertise those items from those companies if they didn't know that they could get them because they care about customer service too, even though they're fraudulent. So, you know, they get the product for free. The merchant gets a charge back down the line and the customer gets the item directly from the merchant. So those are going to be hot. There's going to be a lot of social media ads and other things, uh, especially on one social, one or two social media channels, but where there's, you know, fake ads or for, you know, these triangulation websites or one day deal sites or whatever, it's going to be a lot. Customers are going to be looking for a deal, whether that is on secondhand marketplaces, you know, where people can put anything up for sale. And so fraudsters will put those up for sale or through, you know, this fraud as a service, as I've been talking about a lot. And I've been talking about a lot, again, the same way I said it earlier today, like I've been talking about it because it needs to be talked about because I don't see anyone else talking about it. As soon as I see a lot of other people talking about it, I should add in the right way. I will be I, I won't need to talk about it anymore. I'll move on. I say in the right way because there have been a couple of vendors that I will not name who have, you know, tried to ride in the coattails of this topic that's really concerning to merchants and saying, hey, come to us because, you know, we we cover your char- fraud chargebacks. Well, I think they're kind of missing the point that the reason why refunding is so dangerous is because it doesn't ever result in a chargeback most of the time. Uh, most people who are you know, partaking in refunding and hiring a refunder have realized that if you file a chargeback, it can take a long time to get your money back. It can take, you know, up to 45 days. If you, you know, hire a refunder, you just pay them a very nominal fee and go there. Here's what I really want you to know. And I learned this from Chase. I always try to give credit where to my sources when I can name them. And he has you know, shared with me some screenshots. I've included them in a few recent presentations of these refunders doing pre-holiday marketing and saying, I'm going to be lowering my rates for the holidays. You know, my, my rates for the holidays. I mean, some are going down to 7% of the transaction value. So if somebody buys a $2,000 laptop, they only have to pay. Oh gosh, now I have to do math on the spot. I should have picked a different number, but (laughs) well, let's see, 7% of a thousand would be $70. So yeah, $140. I was about to say that, but I wasn't sure. So they only have to pay the refunder $140 uh, for a $2,000 laptop. And if you work for a merchant, you're out that $2,000 laptop and the $2,000. It's essentially like they shoplifted from you. They are advertising that they're going to have low rates. They're advertising they're going to have specials and daily deals and lightning deals and early bird. I mean, it's insane. But there's a reason why they're doing this because they know that there is ample supply. They know that merchants are not doing enough to restrict refunds. But here's the other piece. When I had the ref- the retailer call last week, a lot of people were concerned about how many legitimate customers are not going to get their items because of some of the reasons I just listed, because their warehouses have to social distance and they can't have as many people in there as they do in the holidays. 
And because the shipping you know, companies are also socially distant and can't get signatures and are busy and overworked. And I, especially with, you know, some shipping partners in the U.S., especially one, like there's some question over whether they can deliver on time right now. So there's a, and that's before the holidays and, and before an election. So, uh, you know, it's it's a lot. So there's going to be potentially a lot of customers who are calling to get a refund because they really didn't get their package. So it's important to have a game plan to be able to recognize the difference. And and there are ways to do that. Sometimes you may need to have the intelligence of what exactly the refunders are doing. And, you know, to my knowledge, Chase is the only one who has access to that, but that is sharing it with, you know, this side of the fence, I should say. There's a lot of people have access to it. They're just not sharing it. But these are private groups you can't search for, you can't find. And it's, you know, they're, they're not the ones, the, I'm not talking about the ones that are public that you can search for and see a company name listed as, you know, offerings. That's what they advertise to the public. I'm talking about the refunders who talk to each other. The reason they're so good is because they all share information with each other. That's another reason, reason number 587, why I am so big on collaboration in multiple ways, internally in the company, externally within the fraud industry. That's why I've, you know, I'm working with a incredible startup who has created the first anonymous merchant uh, network to be able to share information and validate customers without any data leaving your server. It's brilliant. That's why I host so many calls for merchants without charging anyone. Like I'm just a huge fan of it because the bad guys work together. We have to, to, to just even kind of catch up. All of that being said, you know, it's important to know that refunding as well as buy for you is just going to keep going as long as you're not doing something to find out, like, you know, have the intelligence. Now, there is a company that I've been working with that does have a solution to help merchants with retail with refunding fraud, but it's still pretty early in inception. And I don't, you know, I don't use this podcast for ads except for for the sponsors of the podcast. But I am just saying, you know, there are things in place and I know there are other uh, vendors who have mentioned to me that they're working on things right now. A lot of it looks like policy management. So just be really, you know, conscious of, you know, knowing just because somebody says it might solve a problem, double check that it really will. But it's a known problem. So I know there will be a technical solution down the line. But right now, I think it's important to get any information you can to at least understand, you know, how it's happening to you. One of the things that Chase can do is he can, you know, ask one of his refunder, well, his aliases, refunder friends to, you know, to do a refund for him for these, for the companies. And, you know, he'll have to pay the fee and you'll have to help him with that. And also make sure you sign something so you don't sue him. (laughs) Um, But he can place an order and have that refund go through. So you can actually see exactly how they're doing it. And different refunders have different methods. So that's just, I'm not trying to plug him necessarily, just trying to give you guys resources because this problem is so new that there really aren't a ton of solutions. But if you don't do anything, it's just going to keep multiplying. So number one, I want you all to be aware of this. It's going to be hard this year. I think we just have to be prepared for it. It's important to socialize and educate your leadership and other teams about the threats to your company and ask for what you need. I think, you know, getting a call on their calendar, 
telling them what it's about, having a really well thought out presentation about this is what's happening. This is what people are saying about our company in dark web forums or on Reddit or on, you know, Telegram or wherever. Super important for them to understand that. These refunders and the buy for you people that are doing it, they are advertising to the exact same consumers that your company is. You are essentially competing with yourself, except for the competition with yourself is you lose money. It's not like, ooh, we're competing with ourselves and all the money comes into us. No, no, no. You're competing with an entity that's actually draining money from you. It's not even like a competitor. It's a hundred times worse. So I think it's really important that they know that. I certainly do have my hands on several lists for retail of retailers that are being targeted for refunds right now, if you're curious, and only if you work for that retailer will I send it to you. But I certainly can if that's helpful. I can always set up a 30-minute assessment call with Chase and I to be able to see some of those screenshots. But, you know, again, I'm just trying to find solutions for you. I'm pretty busy, so I'm not trying to pitch my services. I'm just really trying to say, like, right now I'm the only person I know that can help. But if there's other people, I will point you to them as well. I mean, I'm not the only one. Chase honestly has, you know, I'm really good at the processes and the procedures, and I've already put some in place that... I'm pretty proud of. They're pretty phenomenal, I have to say. But I mean, because they're also not resulting in chargebacks. That's the ultimate, right? When you put anything in place, you want to make sure that it's not actually hurting good customers. And it's also not causing people to just go another route. So I'm proud of the things I've done. But Chase really has the intelligence and then I can help with the processes and procedures. But, you know, like I said, if you need to tell them how much you're, they'll lose if they do nothing, I really recommend that metric. It's a little harder with refunds because it's a huge bucket and you don't know which ones are legitimate and which ones aren't. But I can tell you, you know, I think I've said this before, there's a big retailer that has told me that just in one category of their refunds alone, because they actually, they measure, you know, did not receive versus, you know, all the other reasons like broken merchandise or whatever it was. And for a ref refund without a return, basically. And they looked at that and they were losing three times as much as their chargebacks. And they spend millions of dollars to fight fraud but not, you know, refunds. So, you know, understand that it's a bucket, but I would say that for some big retailers, it would be safe to assume that at least 30% are fraudulent. That's an anecdotal number that is just based off of the things that I have talked to merchants about, the numbers that I do know about, you know, privately, as well as just what I'm seeing and how prevalent it is um, and how many vouches are being posted for refunding just constantly, which a vouch is almost like a Yelp review. I know Chase described it on his interview. So it's, you know, it's prolific. And then do the best you can. There are some services that can help you with manual review where you only pay a small percentage of what they approve and they'll just take your extras or they'll take whatever you're going to decline and they'll try to save as much as they can for you. And there's at least one that one and two that I really think highly of. So I'm happy to, you know, give a recommendation on the side for that, you know, double check your processes, right? Like, I mean, double check that you have the right, right fraud technology. If you're able to make a switch, I would highly recommend it. Maybe add another layer of identity verification. If you have rules, set some smart rule sets. If you don't know how, hire someone who can or ask your fraud provider to help you though. You know, yeah, uh, it's always important to know that not all fraud solutions work the same, but 
I think it's also equally important to really consider team morale right now. Everyone's working from home. Most everyone is stressed out. Most of, you know, anyone that has kids in most states, they're, you know, working along with them and have to be supervised midday. I mean, it's just bananas out there, especially in the U.S., but all over the world. I know everyone, there's not a single person in this world that hasn't been impacted in some way to this pandemic this year. And Unfortunately, the holidays are going to be one of them, but I think it's critical to remember your team. I actually did a fun contest on my LinkedIn about a week ago asking people, you know, what are some fun things that your company has done for morale? And so I'll cover that soon uh, in an upcoming episode. Uh, You can also go back to my old posts and look for that. Uh, There's some really fun ideas, everything from hiring a magician, you know, to just randomly show up on a team call to having a half an hour um, a week or a couple times a week where it's just kind of, you know, coworkers just talking to each other, almost like water cooler conversation and just, you know, checking in on people's mental health. We're all feeling like we're going crazy right now. And some of us actually do have (laughs) diagnosed mental health issues like myself. I have depression and anxiety and it uh, can be really good. I mean, it can be under control at times and it can be out of control sometimes. So check in on people. You know, last year I was hired to help a luxury brand prepare for the holidays and they hired me in October and it was a little tight, but I was able to go in and really help change and upgrade their manual review processes and their verification services. Their manual review team was overseas, so I went and trained them for two days. The difference and the metrics and the KPIs were remarkable. Uh, I mean, it really, uh, manual review decreased by over 47% approvals of transactions. So they were um, declining a lot less transactions went up, I think by over 20%. I'm trying not to mix all the KPIs that I know from them because there's also a chargeback component where those really went down and their win rate went up. There was a lot of really big wins in that in that engagement and a lot of lost hours of sleep and a lot of travel. I think I was gone uh, from Seattle for 21 days out of 31 in October last year. And then I had to go overseas like a week before American Thanksgiving and it was just nuts. But the reason I tell that story is not to advertise myself. I feel like I've been doing that and I don't want to. I just, these are the stories I know because, you know, it's my stories. That's that's what I have as point of reference. But actually the reason I'm saying it is that with some fairly small tweaks, I mean, I trained their team for a day and a half on manual review and added one extra layer of verification that they needed and changed a couple SOPs and they were off and their holiday numbers were incredible. They were better, their approvals as well as their manual review and everything else were so much better during holidays when they were the busiest than they were previously in the year. So I'm saying that because the tweaks do matter. Looking at the holistic strategy and saying, where are things going through? You know, map out your whole process, map out the entire, you know, where the transaction goes all the way through for fraud and look at where the holes are. Where are they? Where are you losing them? Where do you need to add something? What do you need to do? You know, do you need to enlist? Uh, do you need to hire new people? Can you not hire new people? How can you do things like get scrappy? So that would be what I, what I would say about that. Sorry, I'm trying to silence my phone. There's actually a merchant calling me at the moment. But I do need to wrap this up soon anyway. But I really just wanted to share, and I think the biggest takeaway for online retailers this holiday season is be prepared and be prepared early. 
I would much rather have you be overprepared and sit around and be bored than be completely underprepared. Socialize this with your leadership. Come up with a presentation that really, you know, explains it to them in a way that they could understand. Incorporate other things other than just the dollars lost. The brand reputation, the customer experience, customer service, you know, how higher your call volume is going to be if you are having to do reactive fraud prevention rather than proactive. Add everything you can to explain, you know, look up headlines of large merchants being in the news for fraud issues. Do what you need to, to really help them understand and not in a way that's going to scare them or like your chicken little, but as a way that you're doing them a favor. You want to make sure that they know that this could happen and you want to be a resource and help. I think that's the right approach that I've found. Uh, when working with executives, like I said, I'm not always the best at it. I am always going to be a work in progress. I am an eternal learner, but I try. Uh, and, you know, just trying to pass on the little nuggets that I learn to you guys as well. So with that, I really <laughs> hope that no one's grabbing for a cocktail at the moment. But if you are, cheers. You know, we will get through this. We will survive that I am certain of. And, you know, we, we will survive the holiday season anyway. And, you know, I'm always just an email or a LinkedIn message away, but on that note, <laughs> it may take a few days. So take care. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.